right, well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you for the introduction and thank you for the invitation to this conference. It's always great to come to a specialized conference like this and hear all of the interesting research going on in my fields, but also around the world. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the invitation and thank you all for coming when you could be enjoying this sunny day in Oxford. So let me just um, begin with a, just a brief introduction to my overall work. I'm going to actually give you a very narrow slice of my current work and, um, and I did write this paper for the conference so it is very new and sort of ideas that I'm just beginning to think about um, in terms of deportation because most of my work is on uh, social policy and the consequences of social policy. So in um, 2009 and 2010, I spent a year, um, and I did research in four countries, uh, Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, Brazil, and Jamaica, and in each country I interviewed at least 30 deportees. So um, I'm currently working on a book project where um, I tell the stories of those deportees and place them in a larger project, basically trying to understand why the United States is engaged in mass deportation at this particular historical moment. But the work I'm going to talk about today is just going to focus on Jamaica, but if you have any general questions about deportation or about the other countries, I'd be happy to answer them. But just in the interest of time and in the interest of moving forward conceptually, I wanted to focus on just one country for today. Um, so I'm going to start with the story of uh, Victor. I met Victor in the back of a barber shop in a downtown Kingston neighborhood. He walked talked and dressed like a young man from Brooklyn, New York. Victor told me with a heavy Brooklyn accent, I'm from Brooklyn, I grew up in Brooklyn all my life. So although Victor considers himself to be from Brooklyn, he was actually born in Jamaica in a hospital not too far from where we were sitting. And when Victor was four years old, he and his mother took a plane from Kingston to New York City. So Victor and his mother traveled to the United States as legal permanent residence. A legal permanent <coughs> resident is a foreign national who has been granted the privilege of residing permanently in the United States and who qualifies for citizenship by, by a naturalization um, after three or five years. So Victor and his mother qualified for citizenship when Victor was seven years old. Had Victor's mother become a citizen, he could have become a citizen automatically but she never went through the naturalization process. And when Victor turned 18, he could have gone through the naturalization process as well, but he didn't. Um, so in 1996, when Victor was 24 years old, he was caught selling marijuana in New York City. He served two and a half years in prison and was deported to Jamaica because US law requires deportation for non-citizens convicted of drug crimes. Um, in Jamaica, Victor has no friends or in very little family, and he finds it very difficult to survive. When we met, he had been there for about eight years. He longs to return to the United States, where his mother and his daughter live. So Victor's one of many deportees I met who qualified for citizenship, yet who never became U.S. citizens. So had Victor naturalized, he would not have been deported from the only land he calls home. So the mere fact of being born on U.S. territory provides you with the inalienable right to remain in the United States. 
In contrast, anyone born outside of U.S. territory is not generally automatically a U.S. citizen unless they meet certain uh, very stringent conditions. And they can only become citizens if they qualify for and then seek out naturalization. But this legal definition of citizenship tells us very little about where one feels a sense of belonging. So U.S. laws create a situation where people who have spent nearly all of their lives in the country and feel as if they belong in the United States are often deported. So why does the right to remain in the United States belong exclusively to people who are legally U.S. citizens? <coughs> so what about those people who have strong ties to this country yet who are not U.S. citizens? So to paraphrase Linda Bosniak, is alienage alone a morally relevant status that can be taken into account when assessing individuals' rights, particularly the right to remain in one's community? So citizenship is the legal correlate of territorial belonging. It signifies official recognition of a particularly close relationship between a person and a country. So this official right entails the right to participate in politics, as well as the right to not be banished from one's country of citizenship. So scholarly work on citizenship often focuses on political participation, legal status, rights, responsibilities, and belonging. And most scholarship on citizenship examines how rights are distributed within a polity and rarely considers how citizenship can also function as a barrier to territorial rights, um, the right to live in a particular place. So this lack of attention to territorial rights is remarkable because in the US case, territorial rights are actually the only inalienable right that citizens have. Because if you're a US citizen and you're convicted of a felony, you lose the right to vote. All of the other rights that go along with citizenship are conditional and territorial rights are the only inalienable rights that US citizens have. So this presentation addresses the question, what can we learn about the construction of citizenship in the 21st century through a consideration of people denied territorial rights? And I'm gonna argue that addressing this question enhances our understanding of citizenship in two ways. Um, I call into question the assumption that citizenship rights are hierarchical, and I argue that social cultural and legal citizenship rights are non-convergent. And I provide evidence that alienage is not always a salient aspect of the lives of non-US <coughs> citizens. Instead, alienage becomes relevant at certain points and facing deportations is one of those points at which alienage becomes extremely relevant. So this examination of territorial rights is critical in this era of mass migration. As you know, there is nearly a quarter of a billion international migrants in the world more than ever before in history. And people often migrate to realize their social, political, cultural, and um, legal rights. So what happens when people are given access to social, cultural, and civil rights, yet they lack the most basic right, which is the right to territorial belonging? So a consideration of deportees who were once legal permanent residents provides some answers to this question. So scholars often frame citizenship rights in a hierarchical fashion, with civil and political rights being the most basic, followed by social and then cultural rights. So I'm gonna argue that 
Territorial rights are not a necessary condition for social or cultural citizenship. Instead, I find evidence for Linda Bosniak's claim that citizenship status and citizenship rights are simply non-convergent. Legal permanent residents can feel a sense of belonging in the United States even if they're not naturalized citizens, and not all people who are citizens by birth or by naturalization feel as if they belong, as evidenced by the fact that Victor doesn't feel as if he belongs in Jamaica, his country of birth. So those non-US citizens who are raised in the United States and complete their education often feel as if they belong culturally and socially to the United States. These experiences growing up provide them with access to social and cultural rights. Through socialization in school, as Roberta mentioned in the introductory lecture, even undocumented children can feel as if they belong in, in the United States, at least until they realize the tremendous barriers they face as they tr transition to adulthood. But children who are legal permanent residents encounter many fewer barriers growing up and transitioning to adulthood. They can join the military, they can own property, they can attend university, and they can even sometimes vote in local elections. So nevertheless, legal permanent residents, unlike citizens, face the possibility of deportation if they do not naturalize and if they're convicted of a crime. So the possibility of deportation points to the importance of alienage. So in this presentation, I argue that although legal permanent residents lack formal citizenship, they can have strong relationships with their communities. And although only citizens of the United States are members of the political community, the United States is more than a political community. It's a cultural, social, and economic community. So, and many non-citizens who reside permanently in the United States consider themselves members of these communities, um, despite their formal exclusion from the political community. For them, U.S. citizenship is important not because it would provide them with a sense of belonging as a hierarchical understanding of citizenship would imply, but because citizenship is the only guarantee against deportation. So these findings point to a contradiction. Citizenship implies a political relationship with the government. However, what is most important in our daily lives is not our relationship with our government, but that with our families and our communities. The formal relationship with the government is the only way to ensure against deportation. So just to give you a little bit of policy background, in the United States, legal permanent residents can be deported if they are convicted of an aggravated felony. So an aggravated felony is any felony or misdemeanor which carries a sentence of at least one year in prison. So whether or not you actually serve the sentence is irrelevant. And these crimes can be relatively minor. So a legal permanent resident of the United States can be deported for shoplifting, for two marijuana charges, um, for, any, for a, a wide variety of minor <coughs> crimes. And these cases do not require judicial review. So in an aggravated felony case, the judge cannot take into account your family, community, and social ties. So if you're a non-citizen facing deportation, um, you go through a civil process, so it's not a criminal process, and that's important because in the United States, we do provide due process protections to people facing criminal charges, but if you're facing civil charges, such as deportation, you do not have access to counsel, or, or state-provided counsel, and you don't have access to all the due process protections that come along with normal court proceedings. So if you're, an, if you're a non-citizen that's been accused of an aggravated felony, the only thing you can argue in court is that the crime is not an aggravated felony. 
But you can't say, you know, I've never been to that country, I don't know that country, all my family lives here. All of that evidence is not admissible in a U.S. Uh, immigration court in, the, in aggravated felony cases. And this is important, right, because so in the United States, we have a fairly draconian deportation system, um, and we've had it at least since 1996, but we've deported more and more people every year. So the fact that we have such a draconian system has become more important because we've been deporting more and more people. Last year, we hit another record high, deporting 400,000 people. So that's more than double the number of people deported in 2002, and it's more the, than the entire decade of the 1980s. Um, so currently we have um, a Democratic president, Obama, and uh, according to my calculations, if he continues deporting people at the current pace, by 2014, President Obama will have carried out more deportations in six years than the sum total of every single person deported prior to 1996, right? So, so why is this, let me just, I want to just give you a brief policy background on why the United States is deporting so many people. And there's two reasons for it, okay? The first reason is that in 1996, um, we passed two laws, the Illegal Immigration and Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act and the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, affectionately known as ERA-ERA and ADPA. Um, so these two laws, what they did is they expanded the grounds on which you could be deported. So they, they made the aggravated felony provision larger than it had been, they, and they created all these other ways that you could possibly be deported, and they narrowed the grounds for appeal. So they transformed large numbers of people from being eligible for legalization or from being legally present to being illegally present. So in fact, if you were a legal permanent resident, you could have committed a crime in 1994 that was not a deportable offense. You could have pled guilty to that crime. And in 1997, if you were encountered by immigration officials, you could be deported retroactively because the law also applied retroactively. So basically, the law created a situation where a lot of people were made to be deportable and deportations rose, but why do they keep rising? The answer to that question um, is, someone mentioned earlier, the deportation gap, the sort of gap between the deportable population and the people that are actually deported. Well, you can narrow that gap by putting a lot of money into immigration law enforcement. So in the aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks in Washington, in um, New York City, et cetera, actually the Pentagon, they, um, the Department of Homeland Security was created. The creation of the Department of Homeland Security um, meant that billions of dollars were put into national security. And in the United States, immigration law enforcement was encompassed under this idea of national security. So today, the budget of the Department of Homeland Security is $60 billion. It's a lot of money, hard to imagine, but the budget for the Department of Education is $78 billion. So you can sort of imagine the scale. The, the budget for the Department of Justice is $30 billion, right? So the United States is spending more money on immigration law enforcement than all federal law enforcement agencies combined, all other federal law enforcement agencies. So basically, we're deporting a lot of people because we changed the law, but recently it's because of the executive branch um, building up its force and requesting more money from Congress and, and spending more money to enforce the law. The other interesting thing about deportation is that, so it's draconian, we're deporting more people than ever, but deport deportation is extraordinarily skewed. The United States has immigrants from all over the world, yet 98% of deportees are Latin American or Caribbean, and 89% are men, or 88 or 89% are men, right? So primarily, 
Latin American and black Caribbean men are the targets of deportation policy. Um, and I don't have time to get into exactly why that is today, but it has a lot to do with the fact that um, the way the Department of Homeland Security finds all these deportees is through the criminal justice system. So as you know, criminal justice agents are often profiled by race, but they also profile by gender. Men are much more likely to be pulled over, get into the police system than women. Um, so that's the context of uh, deportation in the United States. And the present study is based on interviews with 30 Jamaican deportees, all of whom were legal permanent residents of the United States. So among Jamaican deportees, 95% are men, 28% arrived in the United States before the age 16, and their average period of residence in the United States is 12 years That's the, in, in the adult. And the, and the majority of criminal deportees were expelled on drug charges, and very few were convicted of um, violent crimes. So Jamaicans are particularly likely to be deported. About 10% of the people who were deported between 1997 and 2006 who were legal permanent residents were Jamaicans. Jamaicans make up about 2% of all legal permanent residents in the United States. So they're about five times more likely than the average legal permanent resident to be deported. And overall, 8% of all Jamaican male legal permanent residents have been deported. Right? So it's true that actually the deportation of a legal permanent resident in the overall scheme of things is fairly uncommon. It makes up a small percentage of all deportations, but it makes up a fairly large percentage of the Jamaican community. So when you deport 8% of all legal permanent resident men, you're talking about deporting a lot of fathers, a lot of um, brothers, a lot of sons from one particular community. So the Jamaican deportees I interviewed <coughs> often felt as if they belonged in the United States, even though they were not US citizens. They built their lives in the United States. Many were married and most had children. Their parents and siblings became US citizens and ma many deported legal permanent residents made legal citizenship rights claims based on their social and cultural citizenship. Some deportees protested their deportation on the grounds that their family members were all US citizens. Another discursive strategy deportees used was to point out that the United States is their home because of the ties they built there. So these deportees appeal to the notion of jus nexi, where citizenship would be based on authentic connections to a society developed through social, cultural, and economic participation. So familial ties were a central reason deportees cited when arguing they belonged in the United States. So Hazel is actually the only woman I interviewed, but I happened to include her quote here. Um, so she, and her, her, the way she talked about her family was very similar to other deportees. So as a representative quote, she, um, she had three children in the United States and she was deported after being convicted of a drug offense. So she argued, I deserve to go back. I didn't kill anybody, I didn't rob anybody. I committed a crime, but I did my time. At least allow me to travel and see my kids. They are all American. That makes me a citizen too, because they were all born there. None of my children were born here in Jamaica. So she made citizenship claims on the basis of Two arguments, she argued her crime was not that serious for her to merit permanent banishment from society and her children are all US citizens. Um, so many people made these made similar arguments that they admitted they did a crime, but they didn't think that it merited permanent banishment from society 
and they felt as if their ties to the United States meant that they belonged there and they deserved to be there. Um, so deportation was very harsh for Victor, introduced in the beginning of the paper. He told me he used to sit in his room and stress out when he was deported. So arriving in Brooklyn at age four and spending his entire life there, Victor developed a deep sense of belonging to his community, even though he was not a citizen of the United States. So Victor graduated from high school in 1991. He got a job as a messenger. He worked there for a couple years, but the pay wasn't that good, and he wanted to help out his mother, who was working very long hours in a hospital. He wanted to help pay the rent, and he saw opportunities in his neighborhood to sell drugs, so he began to sell marijuana. He soon was caught and charged with possession of marijuana, he received three years of probation. But then in 1996, he was caught with a large portion of marijuana and he was sentenced to four years in prison. So he served two and a half years. And in 1999, he was deported to Jamaica. He was 27 years old. So Victor believes he, did not, he does not deserve to be deported. He feels he belongs in Brooklyn because he grew up there and also because he perceives that the only people in the world that care about him live there. He explained, it's not good to live in a place for so many years, to live and have family that loves you and make sure you're all right, and then to come here. You're a person that used to work and earn your own dollar. Then you're here, what are you gonna do? I have a woman that loves me in America. I've been with her since she was 17 and I was 18. Now I'm 31. I have my daughter, I have my mother, my brothers, I have my sisters, my uncles. What the hell am I doing here? So Victor wants to return to America and he's tried several times, even though if he returned illegally, he would be undocumented. <laughs> Um, but he doesn't care. For him, what's most important is that he's able to live near people that are important to him and that care about him. So he claims he belongs in the United States because of his family and social ties there. Like many other deportees, he perceives that no one in Jamaica cares if he lives or dies. So these deportees made claims to the United States based on their relationships to their families, friends, and communities there. Their lack of similar ties to Jamaica makes them feel lost and out of place in their land of their birth. Their stories show how one can experience several types of belonging without formal citizenship status. Moreover, they show how important the right to stay can be for those who feel a strong sense of belonging. Their citizenship claims are, made on, are based on their contributions to society and their family ties to the United States. They made claims to legal citizenship on the basis of social citizenship, economic contributions, and cultural citizenship, which is their family ties and their sense of belonging. And in Jamaica, they had legal citizenship, but did not feel as if they belonged. So the fact that legal permanent residents feel a strong sense of belonging to the United States raises the question of why they never sought citizenship. So I found that somewhat ironically, they did not seek out citizenship because alienage was not a salient aspect of their lives. So most deportees I spoke with told me that they thought about naturalization, but never got around to it. Chris, for example, moved to the United States in 1969 when he was 16 years old. Barely out of high school, he married a woman. And they had three children together. And they were living in Brooklyn in 2006 <coughs> when one of his neighbors broke into his apartment and stole his cereal. Chris went downstairs. They got into an altercation. The neighbor put out a knife, and Chris wrangled the knife from him and stabbed him. Despite his claims to self-defense, he was charged with assault and sentenced to one year in jail. Because he had been convicted of a violent crime that carries a one-year sentence, he faced automatic deportation. 
He serves eight months of his sentence and was released from Rikers Island Jail, only to be taken directly to immigration detention, where he spent five months and then was deported to Jamaica. When he was deported, Chris had been in the United States for 38 years, was married to a US citizen, and had three US-born children. He had not been back to visit Jamaica the entire time he was in the United States, and had not met, maintained ties with the land of his birth. Right, so why didn't he seek out citizenship if he was so tied to the United States? So I asked him, I don't know. I don't even know what to say to you. Because many times, my wife, my friends, my cousins, my aunts told me to go and apply for citizenship, and it just couldn't get me there. Right? So he just he felt comfortable as a legal permanent resident. He knew he should probably apply for naturalization, but other demands on life were more salient in his life, and he never actually went through the process. Um, the daily pressures of life and the desire to survive superseded the perceived need to seek out citizenship. For these deported legal, res for these deported legal permanent residents, their lack of US citizenship was an exclusion mechanism that prevented them from having territorial rights in the United States. This exclusion mechanism, however, was only made visible when they faced deportation. Prior to that moment, they rarely, if ever, thought about deportation. And when they did think about it, they didn't think it would happen to them. So even Victor told me, I knew people that got deported, but I never thought I would get deported. So for most deportees, alienage was not significant in their daily lives, and their primary attachment to the United States were based on their cultural and social belonging, despite their lack of formal political belonging. So this presentation contributes to the scholarly discussion on the meanings of citizenship and alienage through an analysis of the narratives of Jamaican legal permanent residents who have been deported. Their stories render it evident that legal permanent residents' sense of belonging in the United States is rooted in their families and communities. The strong sense of belonging that Jamaican deportees feel to the United States makes it clear that alienage was not a significant factor in their lives. Many legal permanent residents thought they should naturalize, but it was not a pressing issue. Remarkably, the reason Elliot was not significant is because they had access to other forms of citizenship. They had access to social citizenship, the rights and responsibilities they had in terms of providing for their families, and they had access to cultural citizenship, feelings of belonging to their communities and families. With access to cultural and social citizenship, these deportees did not perceive a pressing need to seek out formal legal citizenship. So we can now return to the question posed at the beginning of the paper, what can we learn about the construction of citizenship in the 21st century through the consideration of people denied territorial rights? So I've argued that legal permanent residents do not seek out naturalization because alienage is not a salient factor in their daily lives. Their alienage, however, is the sole reason they are deportable. So there's a disconnect between the experiences of non-US citizens who feel American and the US legal system's view of them as aliens who have no claims to territorial rights. So when citizenship is understood as political belonging or formal legal status, it is necessarily bound within the nation state. However, where citizenship is understood as the enjoyment of basic rights or entitlements, the ideal of a transnational or global citizenship seems more plausible. In today's world, people often cross national borders to enjoy the most basic right to be with their family. Victor's mother, for example, 
travels to the United States both to be with her siblings and to seek out a better life for herself. Once she brought her children to the United States, her children formed ties there despite their lack of formal citizenship. And U.S. immigration law does not recognize these ties as deportation laws made, um, as made Victor um, deportable. Seems to have lost the last paper. That's good because I'm probably out of time anyway. <laughs> uh, so although, so, so, so the final argument I want to make is that it's in an age of mass migration and mass deportation, um, a human rights frame becomes more and more um, suitable, even in terms of thinking of citizenship at the national level. So the stories of deported legal permanent residents um, render evident that territorial rights also can be human rights in a world where people are moving um, across borders and where people form attachments to their communities um, and not necessarily to the state in which they live. Okay, thank you.